Let me ask you, what is the biggest moment in your story? Like, like so far, if you look at your life, what's been the, the most climactic moment? What are those defining moments that you look back in your life and you say, this reveals so much of who I am and my purpose and my meaning and my value? I think we all have these moments. We all have these times in our lives, these defining things that happen to us. Like, like for some of us, it might be, you know, that, that the, grad, the day we graduated. We walked across the, the stage with our degree. Or maybe it was the day you said, I do. The day you got married and you, you made those promises to your spouse. Or, or the day you, you held your baby boy or baby girl for the very first time. Or you held your grandkids for the first time. Or, but whatever it is, it's often these moments that we have that define who we are. It's like our favorite movies. We can often look at our favorite movies, and if you talk with a friend, you might say, hey, you remember this movie or that? And you had that scene. It's the climactic scene, the Empire Strikes Back, where it's Luke, I am your father, or it's the, the, uh, the scene at the very end of Tombstone, where it's Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo, and Doc Holliday says, I'll be your huckleberry. It, it, those scenes that stand out to us, that remind us of what that movie was all about. And we have the same thing in our lives, too. The challenge is, I think, in our lives often, what happens is we begin to let the negative things that happen to us define our lives, and those become the climactic scenes. So instead of these really good things that define who you are and what you're all about, it's the, the bad things, the, the difficult seasons, the hard moments, the challenging things that happen to us. And all of a sudden, we let those things define us. But I wonder, is that the way that God meant us to live? See, I don't think it is. We're going to see today as we get into the book of Exodus, chapters 11 through 14, that that God begins to show Israel that it's God that defines who we are. That it's not the the things that have happened to us, but it's what God has done for us that begins to define who we are and what our lives are all about. In the book of Exodus, in chapters 11 through 14 today, we're going to see the most climactic event in the Old Testament. We're going to see God deliver his people out of Egypt, and they cross over the Red Sea. And We're going to see all throughout the Old Testament that God continues to point Israel back when they find hard moments, when they begin to define their lives by the hard things that are happening to them, or they get into a season of doubt or a season of challenge. And God says, don't forget, remember what I did for you. Remember that moment that I did, that defined, the thing that I did that defines your life when you crossed over the Red Sea. But in the New Testament, we see that the Apostle Paul says that, that these things were written down for us so that they can be an example for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says that, that this took place, that Moses leading God's people from the Exodus across the Red Sea to rescue them took place for us to be an example for us. And I think what God wants to say is, I want you to let me define your story as well. God told Israel, look back at the Red Sea. Look back at at how I rescued you. And God tells you and me to look back and see what he has done for us too. Look back at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus and see that God has rescued us too. So wherever you find yourself today, whatever you're walking through, whatever challenges are hanging off of you, I want you to... Stop letting those things define you and start letting what God has done for you define your meaning and your value and who you truly are.
If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And last week, we camped out in the plagues, really Exodus 7 through 10. And we see that God is bringing a, a series of plagues on the Egyptians. And he's showing Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that they've built their life around a false religious system, a system based on fake gods who don't exist. And so God begins to dismantle this religious system by showing them that the God that they worshiped of the Nile or the God of the sun or the God of the land or the God of the desert, that these gods actually aren't real. They're idols. They're, they're fake. And God shows that he is the one who has power over creation and he is the one who has power over nature. But God isn't just dismantling those Egyptian gods and that religious system for Pharaoh and Egypt's sake. He also is doing it for Israel's sake. Because remember, the Israelites grew up in this society. They grew up seeing these, these Egyptian gods, and they grew up believing in them too. And so God is saying, no, I am the only one who is in control of everything. And we talked about last week how you and I, we might not worship gods of the Nile or the sun or the desert, but we sometimes worship the idols of our careers or of our relationships or of stuff, fill in the blank. So God is trying to help us to see that he is the one truly in control. And what we're going to see today in the most climactic event in the Old Testament is that God is the one who rescues and delivers his people so God can define who we are and what our lives should all be about. We left off last week at the ninth plague. And so today we move to the very last plague, which is the most difficult plague. Plagues one through nine, God was, was focusing that on a particular Egyptian god. But at plague 10, God is focusing it on Pharaoh. And in plague 10, God is going to be judging Pharaoh for his sin. Judging Pharaoh for the evil things that he has done. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at this text and see this 10th plague and wonder, why does God have to do this? Like, Why does God have to, to judge so harshly. Notice, if you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 11, starting in, in verse 4. Moses, God through Moses says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborns of the cattle, there should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such has never been nor ever will be again. So God says this terrible judgment is coming on, on Egypt. And again, we wonder, like, why? It's kind of hard to swallow this idea of like, God's judgment. God, didn't you do enough? Like, the, the plagues, one through nine, wasn't there enough terribleness to demonstrate what you wanted Pharaoh and, he, and the Egyptians to see? Like, why can't you just push pause and let, it, let the Israelites leave? But I think there's a deeper thing at play here. Because sometimes when we think about God's judgment, we often say, well, I thought God was a God of love. Why would a God of love also be a God of wrath and a God of judgment? But I think when we say that, we miss something about God's nature and his character. So we, we see throughout the Bible that God is holy, that God is all holy. And the reality is that an all holy God can't allow sin to exist in, with his holiness. And so, yes, he's a God of love, but the flip side of the coin is that he's also a God who judges sin. Because God knows that sin destroys and breaks what is good. I think if you're a parent, you understand this. As parents, we, we love our kids. 
But we also know that if we let our kids just play video games all night, skip school, and eat junk food, then it's not going to be good for them. It's not going to be the best plan of their life. And so we have to say no. We have to judge bad behavior. God does the same thing. Later on in the book of Exodus, when, after God rescues his people and God brings them out, we, we see that Exodus 34, 6, God tells us about his characteristics. And notice what he says in Exodus 34, 6. He says that God is compassionate, that God is gracious, that God is slow to anger, and that God is abounding in love and faithfulness. And what that means is that God, God will one day judge our sin, but God gives us so many opportunities to, to repent of that sin and to turn away from our sin and turn to God. And if you look at the story in Exodus that leads up to the 10th plague, God has given Pharaoh so many chances. And he's given the Egyptians so many chances to repent of what they've done. I mean, go back to Exodus 1. In Exodus 1, we see that Pharaoh had put God's people into slavery. And that Pharaoh was so threatened by God's people that he commissioned the right to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. Then in Exodus chapter 5, we see that um, Pharaoh told the Israelites, well, you cannot use straw to make your bricks anymore. You have to go gather your own straw. We're not going to supply it for you. And if you don't make your quota, we'll, we'll, we'll discipline you. And people were beaten and they were killed. So God was doing really terrible things, or Pharaoh was doing really terrible things about God, to God's people. And God comes and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And over the course of the first five plagues, God gives Pharaoh an opportunity every time to, to repent and turn to God and to say, yes, your people can go. And we see that each time God says, Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no. And each time, Pharaoh hardens his heart after the plague. Five times. God gave Pharaoh five chances, and countless chances before, to change his heart, but he didn't. And so we see that, that God gives us plenty of opportunities. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in compassion and mercy, but an all-holy God must still judge sin, and that's what we see here in the 10th plague. We, we see God judge sin because... The reality is sin can't, left, can't go left unchecked. There's a reality in life, and it's this, that sin that is left unchecked leads to very evil and ugly outcomes. I mean, in a heart that doesn't have its sin checked, a heart that's this left to do evil will harden itself and get harder and harder and harder. And we see this throughout history. We see this in our own culture today. We look back last week to the shootings of Buffalo. It's the result of a heart that's been hardened and more hardened and gotten more hardened toward the things of God. We see that in the, in the shooting that happened, or in, in the church shooting that happened in Laguna Woods, California. We, we see the response since the um, opinion got leaked that Roe versus Wade may be overturned. We see that now Supreme Court justices are being um, threatened and family centers are being bombed. And that is the definition of a heart that has been hardened by sin. And so we see that God judges sin. And the reality is, the, the book of Romans tells us, in Romans chapter 3, that if God isn't working in our heart, then there is no righteousness in our hearts. And so we have to see that God is, is moving among us, and we have to see that God is slow to anger and compassionate, but at some point, when our hearts have gotten so hardened, God has to judge that sin, because God is all holy. And that's what God does right here with Pharaoh. And he says that, the firstborn of everyone in Egypt is going to lose their life. And that's the judgment against the sin. But it's also what God's going to do to rescue his people out of Egypt. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice what he does with the Israelites. If you go back to chapter 11, verse 7, it says this. It says, but 
Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So you might wonder, okay, why is that fair then? Why would Israel get a free pass, but Egypt doesn't? Didn't Israel worship those same false gods, those same idols that the Egyptians did? Yeah, they did. Isn't Israel just as sinful? I mean, they, they didn't do some of the genocidal things that the Egyptians did, but was Israel free of sin? No, they weren't. So why does Israel get a free pass? I want you to see they actually don't. Notice what God does. He says that everybody is going to lose a firstborn, but something's going to happen with Israel. Israel's going to not lose a hair on its head, basically, and notice why. Notice why. We see this in chapter 12, verse 3. Because of the Passover. Notice this. It says in chapter 12, verse 3, God tells Moses, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's house, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. God says, for all of the houses of Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a, take a lamb and I want you to, to, to kill that lamb and I want you to, to have dinner that night, but I also want you to take the blood of the lamb and paint it around the doorpost and the lintel to your house. And that night when the destroyer, when the, 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 the angel comes in and that's going to um, lead to this plague, this 10th plague, it'll pass over your house. It'll pass over your household. Why does God do that? See, if Israel was exempt, then Israel wouldn't have needed to do anything. I think what God is showing us is that the the blood of the lamb showed Israel that it wasn't that Egypt was the bad guys and Israel was the good guys, but it was that everybody was a bad guy, but that God was making a way to rescue his people. That God was making a way through the blood of the lamb to rescue his people from death. And so the blood of the lamb showed Israel that they needed redemption too. I think if Israel would have walked out of there and not had to, had to, to do anything, and Pharaoh and all of his family, everybody loses, loses a loved one, but Israel doesn't, then Israel would have started thinking that they were better than they were, that they were the good guys. But God says, no, nobody is good. Everybody has fallen away because of sin, but let me show you what redemption truly means. And so Exodus 12, 13, it says this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God is saying to Israel, it's not, I'm not looking for how good you are. I'm looking for the blood. I'm looking for the blood of the land. Now, I think what God is showing us is he's reminding us that true freedom that when God rescues us, when God defines our life, true freedom is very expensive. True freedom takes the blood of the lamb. True freedom isn't found in, in, in just in trying to, to be good or to do good things. True freedom is found in sacrifice that God makes for us. Now, I think we also need to be careful here because sometimes as Christians, if you've been following Jesus for any time, sometimes as Christians we find ourselves in a place where we go, oh, wow, the blood of the lamb, that's pointing forward to Jesus. Really cool. Now, where are we going to lunch? Like, we, we don't take it as seriously as we need to because it's become too familiar. I want you to see, this is the greatest news ever. Don't let this, this plague, the 10th plague, the Passover lamb, don't let this get too familiar. God is showing us that God loves us so much, he makes a way for us to be redeemed and rescued. This was 3,500 years ago. And God uses this moment to point forward 1,500 years to what Jesus would do on the cross for you and for me. 
And so now God tells us to look back at the cross and see the blood of the lamb that was spilled for us, for us to have redemption of sins. What, what frees us, what leads us to true biblical freedom isn't how good we are, how often we go to church, or if we give, or if we serve, or if we pray. It's not if we read our Bibles, or mow our neighbor's lawns, or do good deeds. What leads to true freedom is the blood of the lamb. What leads to true freedom is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. I want you to notice something. This is, this, is really, this is really cool. If you think back to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. In Genesis 22, we see that God calls Abraham in this very strange thing that points towards Jesus to take Isaac up on the mountain and offer a sacrifice. And so they get on top of the mountain, and God never intended for, for Abraham to sacrifice his son, but God wanted to show us something that he would do with Jesus. And when he takes Isaac to the top of the mountain, there's a ram caught in the thicket. One ram, which one lamb, for one life. That, that lamb represented the life of, of, of Isaac. We get to, to Exodus chapter 12, and God says, take one lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. That one lamb represented the, the, the life of the firstborn, that the angel of death was going to come and, and take the life of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. But when you had the blood of the lamb, when the lamb died for you, then that represented your household. So we had in Genesis 22, one lamb for one life. In Exodus 12, one lamb for one life. As we get to the rest of the Old Testament, we see that there's this thing called the Day of Atonement. And they would sacrifice one lamb for the sin of the nation. And then when we get to Jesus in the New Testament, we see that it's one lamb for all time. One lamb for all mankind. Remember the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. John looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One Lamb for the entire world. All of these things God was using as types and shadows to point us forward to what he would do one day through Jesus Christ. And that you and I, we have been rescued. God defines our life now because of the freedom and the rescue we have through what Jesus did, us, did for us on the cross and what Jesus did by defeating death and rising from the grave. So my, my, I plead with you, don't ever let this become too familiar, but let it captivate you. John the Baptist says, behold. Let, let it captivate you to remember that it's not our good works, it's not these good things we do. What God is looking for in your life is the blood of the lamb. And how amazing is that? When God looks at you, like when God looks at your life, what saves you isn't how hard you work or how good you are or the good things you do. What saves you is the blood of Jesus. When God looks at your life, when you've put your faith in Jesus and said yes to Jesus, you've been made clean and God sees you through the blood of Jesus as perfectly righteous and redeemed. That is a beautiful truth and reality. Never let that go. Let that captivate you. It's a beautiful truth. It's not the blood plus these other things. It's the blood. So notice in Exodus chapter 12, we see that about at midnight, the angel of death came and there was just weeping all over the land, but no one died in Israel because they had the blood on the doorpost and it passed over. So that's where we get the word Passover from. We see that Pharaoh lost his son. There's weeping all over the land and Pharaoh calls out to Moses and Aaron and says, get out of here. He says, go. And so they do. They didn't have time for their bread to finish baking. They had to pull their bread out of the oven and they had to go. But it's interesting, in Exodus chapter 13, we see that God doesn't take them the quick way. I mean, they could have made it from Egypt to Canaan in 10 days. 
but he didn't. Instead, for three days, about he has Egypt, um, he has the Egyptian army like wondering what's going on because the Israelites are walking through the wilderness towards the towards the body of water, um, towards the the sea, and, and so we we see when we get to chapter fourteen now that Egypt that, that Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, we're gonna go get him now. Like we let him go, we shouldn't have let him go. Let's go get them. And so notice what happens in chapter 14, verse 5. It says, when the king of Egypt, this is Pharaoh, was told the people had, had fled and that they're wandering around in the wilderness, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt, of Egypt with officers all over all of them. We said Israel leaves, and all of a sudden Pharaoh changes his mind. He said, why do we let them go? Let's go back and let's get them. And so he takes 600 chariots. And I mean, this would have been a daunting sight. 600 chariots, dust spinning behind them, coming after the people of Israel. And in those days, when a battle happened, the, what determined who won the fight was how many chariots you had. It was the super weapon. So imagine, now you have the world's superpower with the world's super weapon coming after the people of, of Israel. And I want you to see what happens. Notice, the people of Israel look and they see, Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, that when the Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Imagine, it's 600 chariots, all these foot soldiers, all these men who just lost their son. Now, coming after the people of Israel, bloodthirsty, saying, serve me or die. And so Israel sees this dust cloud in the distance, and they think, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Like, this is it for us. And I think there's a, a truth that God wants us to see when we look at this text, and it's this. That sin says, serve me or die. Like, sin always is coming after us. Sin doesn't just easily let us go. Sin says, serve me or die. Israel was free. Israel had left. Israel was on their way out. Now they look behind them, they see sin coming after them saying, serve me or die. And sin does this in our life too. Like I think there's this mental aspect that we understand that when you put your faith in Jesus, you've been forgiven of your sins. You've been, the power of sin has been defeated in your life. And, and now you're called to walk in this newness of life. But yet when we see sin sneak back up, it, it, like, it, it grabs our attention because we think, oh no, it's back. And it's saying, serve me or die. And it could be anything for us. It could be a past sin that you've struggled with. It could be addiction. It could be your, your desire for people's opinions. It could be your rise or fall of success or failure. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how little or how small it is. Those sins continue to chase after us, even when we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. The good news is we don't have to, we, don't, we are no longer under the power of that sin, but still we sometimes so easily go back to that sin because it's just easy and it, it, it so easily enslaves us. This is what's going on with Israel. Notice this. Israel sees this, this giant cloud of, of, of the, um, the Egyptians coming after them, and they're almost like, well, we ought to just go back to Egypt, and it's just easier. It's just easier to give back into that sin, just go serve it. That's easier than dying. And I think God wants to remind us of something. God is continually reminding us of what he has done, and he's reminding us that you can't just escape sin. You have to conquer sin. You can't just hope that you can get away from sin. Like you actually have to put sin to death. And that's what he's going to teach these Israelites. Notice these Israelites cry out to God in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. And they say to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? 
Isn't this not what we said to you in Egypt? Like, leave us alone so we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? Actually, they never said that. But here's what they're saying. that Well, we should have just stayed in Egypt because it was easier to live under slavery than come out here and, like, be, and risk death. And don't we do this all the time? I mean, I think we do this all the time in our own lives. Like, they're accusing God. And I think it's easier. We say it so many times, like, it's easier just for me just to go back and fall back into sin than it is for me to try to live out this freedom because I don't know what's going to happen. Like, so often we'd rather just fall back into sin than live out the uncertainty of the freedom God has called us to live in. And it shows that it's God that's working in our heart. It's not our power that leads to our release from sin and our rescue. It's God who has to do the work for us. So I think one of the realities that we, we, we face in life so often is we tend to run into a hurdle. God, God can rescue us. God can move in our life. But we, the first hurdle we run into, we immediately turn our eyes and go, God, where are you? Like, God, what are you doing? And God's like, I continually move in your life. I'm going to continually move in your life, and I'm going to rescue you just like I did the very last time. But yet our minds, we get so fearful, we get so afraid, we, we, we lose faith so quick that we turn our hearts back. We even begin to start accusing God, and that's what they are doing here. But I want you to notice what, what, what God does here. I want you to notice what, what God says to Israel. God doesn't say, well, you guys are faithless people. I'm just going to go back to Egypt, go back and serve those gods. Notice what God does. God, through Moses, gives them command. He tells them this. Notice this, Exodus 14, verse 13. And God says this, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. Like, God doesn't give them a hard time. God, they're, they're turning their hearts on God, and God's saying, guys, fear not. Stand firm, and watch what's getting ready to happen. God is reminding us. This is big. Don't miss this. God is reminding us that he is faithful, even when we're faithless. That God is faithful every time even when we are faithless. Notice that. He says, fear not. This is like the strongest form of negation. It's not like, oh, don't worry. It's like, don't be afraid. Like, stop be being fearful. Just don't be afraid. Watch. He says, stand firm. Like, I don't expect you to do anything. I want you just to watch and see what I'm doing. See how I'm going to rescue you. It's interesting. We, we see this pattern in Scripture where God wants us to see that he is the one that leads to victory, that he is the one that redeems us, it's nothing we have done. And because of our broken hearts, we immediately taste a little success, and we think that we are the ones that brought the success, and we start getting confident and boastful and prideful, and God wants to help us see that, man, his rescue of our lives, it isn't anything we did. You see this in the book of Judges with Gideon. If you guys know the, are familiar with the story of Gideon, Gideon is a man that God calls and says, Gideon, I want you to raise up an army to fight the Midianites. And the Midianites have a huge army coming. So Gideon goes and gets 32,000 soldiers. And God's like, that's too big. Gideon's like, what? So he whittles it down to 10,000. Still pretty small versus the Midianites. God's like, still too big. Gideon's got like, what? Are you kidding me? So God whittles Gideon's army down to 300. And God says, okay. Now you're the right size, because when we win the battle, you're going to see that it was me that led to victory, not to you. It wasn't you. So you can't be confident it was you. Guys, remember, it's all me. God is saying, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. And what I love about this, too, is 
I think there's a reality in life is that sin wants to be our master. Sin says, serve me first, and then I'll give you all of your dreams, which we know is a lie. Sin says, serve me first, do this, give me your life, and then you'll experience the benefits. And we know that's not the truth with sin. If we serve sin, it leads to guilt, shame, it leads to, to terribleness, brokenness, it leads to death. But notice what God says. God doesn't say, okay, Israel, serve me first, and then I'll rescue you. God says, no, I'm going to rescue you first. Then I'm going to call you to obedience. I think there's a beautiful reminder here. Remember, God hasn't given them the Ten Commandments yet. God hasn't taken them to Mount Sinai. God hasn't given them the law. They don't know anything about what's going to happen. God says, watch, I'm going to save you first. Then I'm going to call you to obedience. And God does that in our life too. Jesus comes in our life and Jesus doesn't say, okay, get your act together and then I'm going to save you. Jesus doesn't say, okay, start looking the part, acting the part, belong first, and then I'm going to rescue you. No, Jesus says, I'm going to save you first. And because of your love for me, because of what I've done for you, then I'm going to ask you to follow me and obey. It's powerful. Don't miss this. God says, let me rescue you first. Notice this. Notice what happens. Exodus 14, 19. Then the angel of the Lord, who's going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. So what's going on is Israel's moving to the wilderness, and God is leading them with a, a, a cloud, a, a pillar of clouds. So this giant cloud that's leading them during the day, and at nighttime it turns to fire. And God wants to block the Egyptians so the Israelites, he can, he can move and show the Israelites that he's going to rescue them. So the, the pillar of cloud moves behind them and actually blocks the Israelites. And then God calls Moses in chapter 14, verse 21, and says, Moses, stretch out your hand over the water. Notice this. So Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and to their left. So I want you to notice this. Notice this. The Israelites had just like lost their faith on God, right? It, it was kind of, I, I imagine it was like when, when Jesus and his disciples are in the boat, if you guys remember the story, and, and they're, they're in the, the Sea of Galilee and the, the waves are big and water's filling the boat. And they wake up and they're like, Jesus, wake up, wake up, wake up. We're God, you're getting ready to die. Don't you care? And Jesus stands up and he's like, shh. And he calms the waves. And then he looks at him and he's like, Where's your faith, guys? Like, that was Israel. Like, they saw the Egyptians, and they're like, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And God's like, hold on. Cloud of fire, or he puts, puts a cloud right between them. Egypt can't go any further. And then he brings um, a wind, the Spirit of God, and it pushes the Red Sea open. And we're not really sure if it's the Red Sea, but we know it was a big body of water. It had to probably be at least 10 feet of water. And um, he, he pushes across the, the sea. We're not exactly sure where that happened at. We'll talk about that on the podcast a little, but it's fun. But it doesn't matter where it was. We know it was a big body of water in Egypt that, that God was going to use his people to cross over. And so he, he creates this wall of water on his right and his left, and his people walk right through. And can you imagine? One minute they were fearful, the Egyptians were getting ready to run them over, and now they're walking through a, a body of water to freedom and to rescue. I think it's a reminder here, guys, that God is reminding us that we aren't saved by the quality of our faith, but we're saved by the object of our faith. The, the, the walls didn't stay up because the people of Israel had faith that they were going to be able to walk through it. God held the water back so Israel could go through it. God is the object of our faith. It's not the quality of our faith. And this is really good news. And I want you to see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. 
See, every other religion in the world is saying that we have to build a bridge to God. So they build a bridge over the water. They build a bridge and they put a pylon, and they build a bridge a little further, and they put a pylon, and they build a bridge a little bit further so that they can cross over to God. And it's morality, it's enlightenment, it's good work. So we've got to earn God's favor, but not Christianity, not our faith. So what God says instead, it can, your quality of your faith can never get you to me because of sin. Instead, I'm coming to you. And what we see is that God parts the waters. Doesn't it? They don't build a bridge. God parts the waters so the people of Israel can walk right through it to forgiveness. And here's what I love about this. It's, it's, it's that our, our, our faith comes, our rescue comes from crossing over. One moment we were, we were lost, the next minute we were found. One moment they were on the side where Egypt was bearing down. The next moment they are walking on the way to freedom. I love what John says in John 5, 24. Notice what he says. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says this. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. When we say yes to Jesus, we put our faith in Jesus, it brings us from death to life. It's not good works. It's not how hard you try. It's not the things you do. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really good news. There was a 20th century preacher. His name was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he was a brilliant man. He was a physician before he went into ministry. And he used to ask this really simple question to people he met who he was talking about faith. He would ask them, are you a Christian? And he would just judge their, their answers. And he says in one of his books that he can't tell you how many times that people's answers were, I'm trying. And what Lloyd-Jones would say is, if that's your answer, then you obviously are missing the main point of Christianity. Because Christianity isn't about trying. Christianity isn't about trying to be good. Christianity isn't about trying to do good works. Christianity is about putting your faith in Jesus, and Jesus saves us. Because at one point, before you said yes to Jesus, you were an orphan. And now once you say yes to Jesus, you have a family. You were, once you were a person without a country, and now you're a person in a kingdom. Once you were lost, and now you are found. You have crossed over, and it wasn't because of anything you did. It was because of faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 2, 8-10 says. It's by faith we are saved in Jesus Christ. But because we are saved, then we respond by living out the work, the good works that God has called us to live. We don't get saved because we're good. God saves us. And then we do good things because God has saved us. And so God has rescued his people, not because of the quality of their faith, but because of the quantity of their faith. Or I'm, I'm sorry, but because of the object of their faith. And God wants to teach you and me the same thing. Now notice this. Notice the end of Exodus 14. The Israelites have walked through the water. And now we see in verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and they went in after them in the midst of the sea. So the Egyptians now, the cloud lifts, the, the Egyptians come in the water after them. And so as the Israelites move out, we see that Moses lift up, he lifts up his hand again. God tells him to stretch out his hand and that the water may come back over the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So verse 28, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. God defeated their enemies. God rescued Israel and then brought the waters back and it swallowed up the entire Egyptian army. We see in verse 30, Then the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his, his 
servant Moses. And can you imagine the Israelites at this point in time? They had been waiting for this moment their entire lives. And now they're rescued. And they look back and they see their enemies, the ones that they feared, washing away in the water. See, there's a truth here, I think, that God wants to remind us of. That God is the one who defeats our enemies. That God is the one who goes to war for us. That God is the one that defeats those in opposition. And that means God is reminding us that we are now freed. Because God defeats our enemies, we are now freed to live on mission for him. See, think of what this means for us. That we no longer have to worry about our enemies that are pursuing us because God has defeated them. That when Jesus went to the cross and and rose from the grave, he defeated death. And that means that our enemies aren't flesh and blood. Our enemies aren't people. Our enemies aren't others. Our enemy was sin and death. And God has dealt with that. And that means that he frees up you and I to go live on mission. That means that God frees up you and I to go and show compassion and to love others with hospitality and to have a zeal for God and to share our faith. And to help others see the the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Like we we now are people with with a mission that is bigger than anything we could ever imagine and to do on our own. And we're free to go live that mission because God has rescued us and he's defeated our enemies. Isn't that amazing? And that means that everything you do matters. You know, I once heard Matt Chandler say in a sermon that, that there should never be a bored Christian. And he's right. Everything you do matters. The the house you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the career you work in, the things that you do, the circles you run in, none of those are by accident. God has called you and placed you in those places to be a light, to live on mission for him. Here in a few chapters, we're going to see that God takes these messy Israelites who had just lost all their faith, now rescued. He's going to take them to Mount Sinai. He's going to give them the law. He's going to tell them about the Ten Commandments. And then he's going to tell them, in Exodus 19, that they are now a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and a light to the nations. And he puts them in the middle of the Philistines and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And he says, I want you to reflect me to everybody in your area. When God rescues us, forfeit, don't miss this, that God does the same thing for us. He, he brings us from death into life, and he sets us in the light, or as to be the light and the salt to the people around us. And he calls us to go and to live on mission together for him. But I think here's a reality, and I want to close with this. One of the realities we have to remember, that we have to remember, we have the propensity to forget so often. We run into hard situations in our life, we run into challenges, and all of a sudden we forget. And we, like like the Israelites, we look and see the clouds of dust coming from the chariots, and we think, God, what have you done? God, where are you? God, I don't see you anywhere. And God's saying, trust me, I deliver and come through every single time. And so because we have such a habit of forgetting, what we need to do is to put people in place in our lives to help us remember, to help us remember what God has done, to help us remember it's God who defines our life. It's not the things that we have done. It's not the bad things that have happened to us. It's the fact that God has rescued us and God has saved us That's what our life is all about. And so my challenge to you is to, what community are you a part of that helps you remember? 
that keeps you from forgetting. Each of us need to be a part of a group that does that, and that's what's powerful about the church, and that's what Christian community is all about. We help one another remember. So as we finish, I just want to give you three quick next steps. And I challenge each of you to take one of these next steps. And the first one is, is this. If you're not part of a Christian community, and coming to church on Sundays is, is, is so critical and so amazing and so vital, but you also need to be walking with brothers and sisters in Christ who can, can encourage you and help you remember. So if you're not part of that community, I'd say plug into a life group. You need to walk with people who are going to help you remember and walk with you to help you through those challenging times. For some of you, I think it's time to join the dream team, to begin serving. You know, you might feel like something is missing in your life, and could it be that that thing that you feel like is missing is that you're not serving Jesus and his church? And we see all over Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that because of what God has done for us and because of his mercy and compassion, we then pour ourselves back out into serving others through the local church. And that fills us up. We use the gifts that God has given us. And so you might feel like something's missing right now. Could it be that you're not serving the church of Jesus, God's church? But but also I think we need to get one-on-one. You need someone in your life who can help you remember Somebody that, that, that it may be a little more mature in their faith. Somebody you can invite, have for coffee or go on a hike or play golf with or do whatever that's going to help you remember. See, I think one of those beautiful things, realities that we experience is when we remember together, when we help each other remember, we, we, we join together on that mission. And as we do, we begin to see Jesus become more and more real in our lives, in our community, and in our church. And as we do that, we can help the people around us see that the kingdom of God is more and more and invite the kingdom of God to come down more and more and become the people that God has called us to be. Would you pray with me?